0: So we are in the Gospel of Mark, working our way through. We've been doing this for a long time now and kind of intermixing some topical studies in with us as well. But we're today in Mark chapter 12. And so if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to have some introduction before we go through that text. Uh, Before I get started too far, I'm just going to let you know why I've got the chair up here. And you'll see me bounce back and forth with this. I wasn't planning on that, but my back is hurting a lot today. Because yesterday I was foolish enough to um, very aggressively wrestle with my son. And so he hurt me, and it's an old back injury that I had a couple of years ago that took a long time to heal from, and it just got messed up again yesterday. So if you see me wince in pain and rush for the chair, you will know why. The question that I want to pose to you this morning is a very convicting question for me, and I hope it will be for you too. I hope that you'll think about it very seriously today. Um, it's a it's a life-changing question, I think, or at least a life-defining question. Here it is. What does God want the most from you? Not just what does God want you to do, but what does God want the most from you? Not just a list of do's and don'ts. What does he want the most from you? Does he want your money the most? Does he want you to go to church? Does he want you to help other people? Does he want you to give up something for a certain period of time, fast for something? Does he want you to stop cheating, lying, arguing, fighting, stealing, whatever sin it is? Is that what God wants the most from you? Does he want you to live your life a certain way or talk a certain way? What is it that God wants the most from you? That's an important question, I think. Because if you don't know that, then you could live your whole life pursuing the wrong things, going the wrong direction, and not realize that what you think God wants the most isn't at all what God wants from you. So it's important for us to think about this. I want to give you a real life example here. Uh, How many of you have had little kids at some point in your life? Little children, sometimes they get ideas into their head that they think are good ideas that turn out not to be such good ideas. So imagine your child came up to you one afternoon and they had been working on a drawing all day or all morning. They were so excited about this beautiful artwork that they had created, but in order to see it, you have to go follow them up to their room. So you go upstairs to their room, and you walk in, and they show you their beautiful artwork. The medium is red marker. Wait for it. The canvas is white carpet. And yes, I took that picture. Have you ever done something like that? You start out in one direction thinking you were doing such a great job, and then later you find out that is not what you were supposed to be doing at all. How many of you have ever regretted uttering these words? We don't need GPS. I can just find it on my own. And then you drive an hour in the wrong direction. I have done that. We do this all the time. What if what God wants from you is actually the opposite of what you think he wants the most for you. I think there are many well-meaning people in the world who do good-seeming things thinking that they're pleasing God when really it's not at all what He wants from them. They might even do lots of good things that actually keep them from doing the best things that God wants from them. And this is exactly the situation 2,000-plus years ago with the religious leaders in Israel. There were a bunch of religious groups and leaders of those groups, and these groups had different names. Some of them, of course, were the priests. Some were the scribes. Then there were the groups of Pharisees, some of whom were scribes. There were the Essenes. There were the Sadducees and other groups like this. These different factions all came up with different ideas of what they thought God wanted the most from them. And they tried to get other people to follow their group and join their movement and be a part of that because they knew what God wanted the most from them. And the truth is that all of these groups ended up missing the mark. They all ended up devoting their lives to things that were not what God wanted the most from them, but they thought it was. We're going to Look at two men this morning. One is a Sadducee and one is a Pharisee. And he's not just a Pharisee, he's a scribe. So he's a teacher of the law. He's a very highly trained Pharisee. Not all of them were, but this man was. And we're not going to spend a lot of time with the Sadducee, but it's important to know that the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they didn't believe in angels. And the Pharisees are an interesting group. They have a lot of disagreements with the Sadducees, although those are two of the big ones. But the big thing about the Pharisees that you need to know is that the Pharisees were expert rule followers. They were great at following the rules. In fact, they were so great at following rules, they were also really, really good at making new ones. Lots of new rules that they created. And something you may not realize about the Pharisees, because oftentimes when we talk about the Pharisees, we think of them as the bad guys, right? These are the guys that Jesus condemned and talked about, and they were these awful, awful people. They thought they were doing what God wanted. In fact, they had some really good rationale for it. I actually firmly believe that the Pharisee movement would probably be really, really popular in some churches today, when you understand what they were trying to do. So here's what they did. The Pharisees looked at these centuries of disobedient Israelites. And this cycle, this pattern, you've probably heard of it before, this pattern of the Israelites rebelling and God sending warnings and then sending judgment. And again and again, the cycle continued. Then they repent and they're restored and then they rebel again and warnings and then judgment and repent and restored, and that whole cycle. The Pharisees looked at that whole thing and they said, never again. Never again are we going to be the kind of nation That is so disobedient that God has to send judgment like that again. And so we are going to take God's laws, God's rules, God's lines, and we are going to add layers to that as sort of a boundary that if you keep our lines and our rules, you'll never get to cross God's. There were 613 laws from the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and those 613 laws, the Pharisees took those and the scribes as well, and they added lots more to them. It's called building a hedge around a law. They built a hedge around the actual law. Here's the line, and I'm going to make another line over here because I don't want you to cross that line. Parents, you totally understand this. Because you know that as soon as you create a rule for your kids, it immediately becomes their responsibility to find a way to get as close as possible to that line while maintaining a plausible loophole. Isn't that true? So you walk in and you find an empty plate of cookies and you say, I thought I told you not to eat the cookies. And your kid looks back at you and says, but you didn't say I couldn't drink the cookies so I dissolved them in milk. Isn't that what kids do? They find loopholes. It's like you didn't technically break the law, but you definitely violated the spirit of it. Those were my cookies. Adults, we do this too. I thought it was hilarious this week to learn that for years, lots and lots of people were counting on their taxes as dependents, their pets. So their dogs, their cats, gerbils, whatever else, rodents crawling around, They were putting those on their taxes. And here's what happened in 1987. The IRS instituted a new rule that you had to include your social security number, the social security numbers of your dependents on your tax form. Guess what? April 15th, seven million children disappeared. (laughs) It was the biggest kidnapping in the history of the United States. And 10% of the minors in this country vanished. It's amazing. This is what we do. We get as close as we can to lines. We find loopholes. We, we get as close to that line as possible while trying to make sure that, we can, that we're not quite crossing that line. The danger of doing that, of getting so close to that line, you know what it is. It's when you're right there, when you're standing right in front of that line, as close as you can get. It is so, so easy to just hop over it, right? And so when we do get close to that line, the temptation is so much easier to just cross that line. So what do we do about this? Well, we create lines that are further back. That's the line. That's the line. So now I'm going to make a line here to make sure that I never cross that line. So no, you can't eat those cookies. In fact, I don't even want you to go near those cookies. If you so much as look at those cookies, you are in big trouble. Don't we do that? We create rules upon rules, hedges around rules to make sure that we never come close to breaking an actual rule. And that's what the Pharisees did. They created extra rules to make sure that God's rules were never crossed. Lots of their own lines, and they wanted everyone to follow those. Not everyone did, but that was their goal. That was the mission of the Pharisees. If everyone just stays as far away from God's lines as possible by following our lines, then God will never need to judge us again. That's a good goal, right? It makes a lot of sense. So if the law said that you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, Saturday in the Old Testament system, a holy day of rest for the Israelite people. You're not supposed to work on that day. Now, what constitutes work? Well, that's sort of left up to the individual for interpretation, but that wasn't good enough. So they added lots and lots of extra regulations. For instance, they decided, and this is based on a number that's used in Scripture, but it's not applied this way in Scripture. They added to it, in fact, this is even clarified in the Babylonian Talmud, and as the Jerusalem Talmud as well a little bit, that these were added rules that weren't actually from the Bible, So they created this rule that 2,000 cubits outside of your dwelling was the farthest you could go on the Sabbath without that distance considered work. Cool. So I can go 2,000 cubits. That's about 1,000 yards. I can go 1,000 yards from my property without it being violating that new rule that we just made, that man-made rule. Now, I can circle the house 10,000 times and travel 10,000 yards, and that's no problem, but I can't travel in a straight line more than 1,000 yards, but what if I want to see my neighbor on that day? And he lives almost 2,000 yards away. What do I do? Well, they came up with a way to do that. The night before the Sabbath, Friday night, they would, they would walk out about 1,000 yards from their home, and they would drop a stash of food there. And now they considered that their dwelling. So then they'd go back to their house, and the next morning they'd wake up, and they would travel a little less than 1,000 yards to their new dwelling place, and then another little less than 1,000 yards to their buddy's house. And that's how they sort of kept the law, but definitely broke the spirit of it, right? Here's another one. Another law that they created, because you can't work on the Sabbath, is you can't carry food from one building to another. So you can't leave a building, or not just food, you can't carry anything, actually. You can't carry anything from one building to another. And so what they would do with the food is they would, the night before, Friday night, they would go out there and they would drop a stash of food in between some houses, So you got four houses kind of on a corner here, and you drop some food in between them. And now, because we put food there, we're going to consider that our courtyard. And all of these houses are actually one dwelling connected by that courtyard. So now I can carry stuff between the buildings. Does it technically follow the law? It's treated that way. It is considered that way. In fact, even today, there are regulations like this that are put into place. I mean, this is fascinating. You, you may not have seen this, but in virtually every major city in this country, there's a little line, a perimeter that is erected around certain parts of the city because that line is considered to be the boundary that creates a dwelling so that Jewish people can walk freely and carry things and none of it's considered work because they're within their dwelling. Because really what it is, it's a series of doorways. Two posts, a string across the top for miles and miles around a city. But it's just a bunch of doorways as far as they're concerned. That creates a a dwelling place, a perimeter that now this is all our house. Does that sound kind of nitpicky to you? Does it sound a little ridiculous? Does it sound like it kind of violates the spirit of the law? Well, Jesus thought so. And Jesus talked about these kinds of extra laws that people added. And and we're going to be in Mark chapter 12 this morning, but just for a minute, we're going to look at Mark 7. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus says this, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship, he says, is a farce for they teach man-made ideas. That is so critical. Man-made ideas as commands from God. Man-made ideas, commands from God, for you ignore God's law and substitute your own traditions. This is what they were doing. And one of the most damaging things I have seen in churches today is when well-meaning people take principles in God's word and they add their own interpretations and methods and approaches on top of that and then they try to force those on other people as if they're equivalent with scripture. It's very easy to do. We find ways of doing things that accomplish whatever the biblical principle is and then we teach other people to do those things and then the danger is we get to the point where we say that a way, approach or that way of doing those things is the same thing as the scriptural command itself. And we get lots of extra rules, regulations, traditions that get added on. And it feels so holy. It feels like a good thing. Like we're being extra spiritual. And we want everyone else to be extra spiritual too. So you've got to follow all these extra things. And there's nothing wrong with having some of those extra hedges and extra boundaries and extra rules. Sometimes they're really important and needed. You can't get away from some of that stuff. But when we start treating those as if they're the same as scripture, that's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what he's driving at. The Pharisees and the scribes added all these man-made rules to God's principles and in doing so, they missed the very point of God's principles. That's what they were doing. What they thought God wanted the most. Strict adherence to a rigid set of rules is actually the opposite of what God wanted from them. So the question I have for us is this. What did God want from them and what does God want from us? What does God want the most. We're going to go to Mark chapter 12. You can open the YouVersion Bible app. If you have it, we're under events in there. You can go to efree.org slash Bible if you don't have one handy. Uh, but if you want to turn to Mark chapter 12 in your Bibles, that's where we're going to spend almost all of our time together this morning. Hey, before we do that, let's just pray and ask God to bless our time reading his word. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for how you teach us And you've been teaching us through this book of Mark. There's so many great things to learn from this. And I just pray that you would help us to internalize the message today. To be receptive to what you want to communicate to us, Lord. To help us to learn and grow from your word. To learn what it means and to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 18, and this is the story about the Sadducees. So we're going to start there and work our way up to this command that we're going to get to in a little bit. So there's this scribe that's going to come up to Jesus in a little bit. He's a Pharisee. This Pharisee scribe is going to come up to Jesus. He's going to ask a variation of the question that I've posed to you today. What does God want the most from you? Well, he's going to ask his version of it, which is, of all the commandments— Which one is the most important? That's his way of saying, what does God want the most from me? So start in verse 18 of Mark chapter 12. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question. Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died without children. Then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them, and still there were no children. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Which, remember, they don't believe in. For all seven were married to her, Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures. Now this would have been very insulting to them. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That would have infuriated them because it implies that they don't know God and he does. You don't know the power of God for when the dead will rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven who they also don't believe in. So Jesus is managing to get them on all sides here. But now as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses in the story of the burning bush? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. It's quite a scenario for these Sadducees to dream up, right? This is what you call an absurd hypothetical. Like, on what planet would this ever happen? Seven brothers end up marrying the same woman and dying in succession. So the older brother marries her, dies. Second brother marries her, dies. Third brother... There's a pattern here that I'm wondering if it should cause us to look into the cause of death. I don't know... What exactly is going on in this situation? But they've, they've thought up this story to try to trap Jesus in this awkward situation. How do you respond to this? At the resurrection, which you believe in, but we don't, so this is not a problem for us, at the resurrection after that, whose wife is she? Is she the oldest brothers? Well, what about the other six? That leaves them without a spouse. Isn't that kind of like adultery? Or is she married to all seven of them? How is that going to work? What an uncomfortable question to have to answer. And yet Jesus handles it with ease. He amazes the crowd here with his ability to answer this question. Eventually he's going to silence people from asking more questions because he does such a good job answering this question. And it's as if he has firsthand knowledge of heaven as he speaks about these things with great authority. He shows that God uses the present tense when he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after they've left this earth. God says, I am presently their God. So he's the God of the living, not the dead. So Jesus attacks the resurrection. He manages to get in an attack on their belief in the angels as well. No resurrection, no angels. Jesus says, nope, there is a resurrection. Here's some proof from the scriptures that you say you follow. And then angels are real as well. Now, you may have noticed in the intro video this morning that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. That means they're very similar. They have a lot of parallel information in them with little bits of detail from the different eyewitness accounts that help us to put together the whole picture. It's very helpful. And over in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew tells us um, that there was this Huddle of Pharisees That was listening to this answer That Jesus gave And they sort of pulled themselves aside And talked about this answer And tried to come up with something that they could use to trap Jesus Now the Pharisees liked Jesus' answer Because they disagreed with the Sadducees On the resurrection and the angels So they were happy With his conclusion here Except for one thing If there's one thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees Agreed on more than anything else It was hating Jesus See, Jesus was an equal opportunity offender when it came to religious hypocrites. And so he attacked the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he had no problem, and now as he's getting closer to his time coming where he's going to give his life, he's becoming more and more blunt, more and more confrontational. And so now this group of Pharisees, this is what Matthew tells us, Mark doesn't include that detail, but these Pharisees, they go and decide, we have got to confront him with something of our own. And so you're going to see this scribe, uh, as Mark calls it, is going to come back in and challenge Jesus with a question. Uh, But he's a Pharisee. We know he's a Pharisee from Matthew. So look at verse 28. Verse 28 of Mark chapter 12 says this One of the teachers of the religious law. Now, that's how this version translates scribe for you, because that's what they were. They were, some versions will say, a lawyer. But that might give you the wrong impression. They were a religious lawyer. They were an expert in the religious law. And so the teacher of religious law, that's what a scribe was, was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. After all, they, they agreed on a lot of this stuff. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these the teacher of religious law, the scribe, replied and said, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. They agreed on monotheism. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. Now, this is where it gets interesting because this scribe is about to say something very insightful. And I don't know whether he really understood exactly what he was saying, if there was a genuine moment of reflection and vulnerability here, or if he was still trying to trap Jesus, I'm not sure. But he says something that you would not expect a Pharisee and scribe to say. He's going to downplay some regulations and religious rituals. He says this, loving God and loving other people, this is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings, and sacrifices required in the law. Remember that these were the men who were trying to make sure everyone followed every law and all of their extra laws with great detail. They were expert rule followers that tried to enforce those rules on everyone else. And yet here is this man saying that loving God fully with every part of your being and loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself is more important than the offerings and the sacrifices, which were the centerpiece of the law. That's where it all revolved around. That's where you got your forgiveness for sin. That was what all of this was working toward. And he's saying loving God and loving people, that's more important than that. And whether he realized it or not, he was really on something. This was very different than what you'd expect from a Pharisee or a scribe. I want to share with you how Jesus describes these Pharisees and scribes. This comes from Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, verse 4 says, They, the scribes and Pharisees, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. And they wear robes with extra long tassels. What sorrow awaits you, jumping down to verse 23, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, that's the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe, even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, this is amazing. First, wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What was Jesus saying here? They had missed the point. The point of the law was not strict adherence to a bunch of rules. That was not what God was trying to accomplish by putting these into place. And it certainly wasn't so that they could add a whole bunch of extra rules on top of that and expect everyone to follow their traditions and preferences and convictions as if they were doctrines or dogma. That's not the point. And so, the admission of this scribe in saying that loving God and loving others is more important than all those other things, that's a big deal. That's huge. That's huge. And Jesus acknowledges that. He says back in Mark 12, verse 34, realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. Imagine being that scribe in that moment when you've just tried to trap Jesus. And now he is saying back to you, You're not far from the kingdom of God. Did that cause a a gulp in his throat? His buddies are watching all of this, and now the guy he's supposed to go attack is telling him he's pretty close because of this little admission that he just made. I don't know exactly what he was thinking there, but it's amazing. And then after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. You know, Jesus was 2-0 on the day and nobody else wanted to join the loser column. So they just figured, we're just going to leave him alone for the rest of the day. We're going to go recheck our notes and see if we can challenge him some other time. So what I want to do in the time we have left here is to unpack what Jesus is saying. What does it mean, love God with everything you are, and love others as you love yourself? Matthew's gospel adds a little bit more detail here. He shares something else that Jesus says, and Mark didn't include this for us, but thankfully we have multiple gospels. So Matthew gives us this little piece of information. Jesus said this at the end, after he talks about the loving God, loving others, then Jesus says, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on or depend on these two commandments. Now, how many of you are visual learners? Anybody a visual learner? You like illustrations? I love illustrations. I need some kind of a picture, something that's gonna help me to to remember and figure out what's going on here. So here's, here's the picture that I have for this. What does God want from us? How should we live? We are going to build a house. And the foundation of that house is going to be Love God, love others. That's the foundation that everything else is built on. And then we're going to add some framing to it. Some walls, some structure gets added on top. And we're going to say that this framing, the walls, the structure that's built on top of this foundation of loving God and loving others, these are all the other commands, all the other instructions, all the other principles. If you're under the Old Testament system, which everyone was at the time Jesus was sharing this, if you're under that Old Testament system, this is the commands and demands of the prophets, the law and the prophets. If you're a New Testament believer and you're a follower of Jesus, this is going to primarily be the principles and instructions in the New Testament, which largely echo and clarify what you see in the Old Testament, but without all of the regulations and and the sacrificial system and all of that. So this area up here is kind of like the, the principles and instructions. That's the framing. Now, watch carefully what happens next. Now we're going to start to add some of the other stuff, the finishing touches in the house. And you're going to see that my art skills are absolutely fantastic. That's a table. There's a, a chair. We're going to put a light in here. Isn't that beautiful? A rug. Um, we probably need a happy tree, right? Here's your happy tree. Uh, we're going to put some art on the walls All of these finishing touches that go in here, these are all the extra things that we put on top, okay? The traditions, the methodology, the approach that we have to how we live out these principles. And there's some good stuff there. That's not all bad stuff. But the foundation here is love God, love others. And then on top of that foundation, Jesus has all the other commands and demands. All of those are built on top of those two. Love God and love others. So this is the foundation. And there's all these other biblical principles that go on top of that. And then we have ways of doing those things. We have hows. We have methods. And that's the furniture, the cabinets, the lighting, the artwork, the, the rugs, the wall colorings, all that stuff. That goes on there. Now, all that extra stuff that we just added, all those finishing touches, are those necessary for that house to stand? No. The framing and the foundation were already there and standing. But those are extra little things that it sort of takes to live and function in the, the culture, the setting, the family, whatever it is, and to, to carry out some of those biblical principles. And they're not necessarily bad things. Let me give you an example here. So, the foundation... is love God, love others. Then on top of that, there's going to be a biblical, uh, we'll say it's a principle, instruction, command. And let's use this one. Pray for all people to understand the truth so that they can be saved. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 2. Pray for all people so they would understand the truth. Paul says they want prayers lifted up for everyone everywhere. He talks about some rulers so that they would understand the truth because God wants them to be saved. Okay, so that's a biblical principle. Now, then on top of that, we add um, kind of our other stuff, the finishing touches. I'll just call this the how or the methodology. And what does that look like? Well, when we pray, you need to close your eyes and fold your hands or hold the hands of people around you or kneel by the bed. You should really have a journal where you can write down your prayer requests and keep track of the answers. Now, are all of those good things? Yeah, there's nothing wrong with them. But that's the extra layer that we put on top. Those are the things that we get used to doing that if we're not careful, we could end up confusing those for the foundation. He didn't close his eyes when he prayed. I'm not sure if he's saved. Isn't that what we do? We add these layers on top, and before long, all we see are the layers. All we see are the extra things, the extra rules, the extra lines that we've created in addition to God's lines, and they're not necessarily a bad thing until we confuse them for the foundation, until we confuse them for the things that really matter. It's adding our own rules to Scripture and confusing them for Scripture itself. Now, Jesus took this even further because he actually said, hey, these commands and demands in Scripture aren't even the most important thing. It's love God, love others. That's the foundation on which all of that stuff is built. So, what does God want the most from you? He wants you to love Him, He wants you to love others who are created in His image. And everything else is going to flow out of that. See, the more you learn to do that in your life, the more your life will reflect all of those principles and commands that are in Scripture. Remember what Jesus said about the cup and the dish? Here's a cup. Jesus said that what they were doing is taking a cup that was dirty inside and out, and they were cleaning the outside. Lots of good religious-seeming things. Lots of doing the right stuff, going to the right places, saying the right things so that people thought you were a good religious person. But on the inside, it was filthy. And what did Jesus say? Here's what you should do. First, clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will become clean as well. Now, those of you who have washed a dish before know that that's not true. If you have a cup that is dirty inside and out and you clean the inside, the outside does not magically become clean. It'd be nice but that's not how it works. See, Jesus wasn't talking about cups or dishes. Jesus was talking about people. And with people, he says that when what's inside changes, the outside will change as well. We tend to focus on the outside, the external behavior. And what Jesus says is, I want to focus on the inside. I want to transform you from the inside out. See, oftentimes, we don't really love people. Like Jesus says, we're supposed to. We don't really love people. We love when they think we're better than them. We love what we can get from them. We don't really love people, but we love that good feeling we get when we do something for them and it makes us look like we love people. And we don't always love God. We love the blessings that He gives to us. We love the fact that because of what He's done for us, we don't have to suffer the penalty for our sins. We don't always love God, but we love treating our regulations and extra rules as if they're his. See, that's how oftentimes we don't really love people or love God. And if following Jesus means following a bunch of rules to you, then you need to get to know Jesus better. Because that's not what it's all about. A lot of people think that Jesus In the New Testament, the God of the New Testament is all about love, and the God of the Old Testament is all about rules and regulations. And Jesus is saying just the opposite. He's saying it was never meant to be that way. You made it that way. And I want to show you an example of this. This is from the prophet Hosea. He's speaking, God is speaking through him. And in Hosea chapter 6, this is what God says, O Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? Asks the Lord. For your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. Isn't that poetic? Your love, it was there for a fleeting moment and then it just dissolved. It was barely there. I sent you my prophets. To cut you to pieces. Now, does he mean physically, with violence, with judgment? No. To slaughter you with my words, with judgments as inescapable as light. When God could have sent immediately physical judgment on the people because of their disobedience and rebellion from him and, and, and violating the covenant that they had with him. Instead, he sent them prophet after prophet, warning after warning, to cut them to pieces with words to bring them back to him. Judgments as inescapable as like why would God do this? Why would God give them all these warnings? Why would he keep entreating them, begging them, you know, come back to me? Why would he do that? Here is why. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. This is God in the Old Testament, the God that set up the sacrificial system saying, what I really want from you is to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Show love, not offer sacrifices. That's what I really want. I want you to know me, not offer burnt offerings. I didn't give you rules so you could become expert rule followers. I gave you rules to protect you to point you to a relationship with me because I am the best thing for you. And when you run away from me, you do so at your own peril. There will be consequences to that. And so I set up this system of parameters and guidelines to help point you continuously back to me. Not so you could be expert rule followers. That's not the point. And what they did is they turned God's system of rules that were meant to help be boundaries to keep them focused on Him and on the right things and obedience to Him. And instead, they started turning those rules into their God. They worshiped the rules instead of the rule giver. It's exactly the opposite of what they were supposed to do. So what does God want the most from you? He wants you to love Him He wants you to love people who are created in His image. And when you learn to love God and love others, those other things are going to flow out of that naturally. It's the right order, the right sequence. You can outwardly follow the commands and still be dirty inside. But you can't devote yourself to loving God and loving other people without being changed from the inside out. Should you give money to what God's doing in mission in the world through the church and missions. Yeah, absolutely. But not so you can check the box, but because you love God and you love what he's doing in the world and you trust him. And you want to do this because you love him and you're faithful to him. Should you gather with other believers regularly? Yes, but not just so that you can say you went to church, but because you love others and you want to learn more about and grow close to and love God more. And that helps you do that. Should you read the Bible consistently? Absolutely, but not so that you can gain some kind of spiritual points, but because that's God's love letter to you, his message to you. It's, it's what he left you so that you can get to know him better and learn about him and love him more. And so because you love him and want to love him more, you read his word regularly. You study it, every word, trying to learn as much as you can about this God because you love him. Should you stop Cheating, fighting, stealing, arguing, lying, whatever other sin is out there, should you stop doing all of that sinful stuff? Yes, but not to try to earn favor with God, not to try to let the good outweigh the bad, but because when you love God and you know that He detests those things, you don't want to do them anymore. When you really love God, you don't want to do the things that the God you love hates. See, it's the right order, it's the right sequence. And Jesus wants to change you from the inside out. The foundation has to come first. Love God, love others, do the rest because you learned that first. That's what God wants the most from you. Now I'm gonna ask you to do something. It's a man-made tradition. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and take a moment, reflect on what we've talked about this morning, heads bowed, eyes closed, eyes closed. After this, we're going to sing a final song. Our prayer team will be up here, and if you want to pray with someone about anything you've heard this morning or anything else, come down front. But while your eyes are closed, your heads are bowed, nobody's looking around, it's just you and God right now, just a time to reflect and think and ponder, and here's what I want to ask you. Have you been living your life like a Pharisee? Have you been living your life so focused on the rules that you forgot about the rule giver? That you've invested so much into making sure everything looks the right way, sounds the right way, you do the right things, go the right places, that you don't really have that relationship with your God. Now is a perfect time to make a commitment. Now is a perfect time to pray to God and just say, God, would you give me a better love for you? Would you help me to learn to love you and know you more? And would you give me a love for other people? If you pray that prayer, I promise you God will honor it. God, would you give me a love for other people? Because sometimes we don't get along, and sometimes I don't agree with them on different things. Would you help me to love them even in those times? Now, maybe for some of you, you've been living a lie for a long time, going through the motions, putting on a good show, doing the christian things, maybe even going to church regularly, but you know deep inside, you're that dirty cup inside. You've tried to clean the outside, but the inside's not changed. And the great news I have for you this morning is that God is all about transforming you from the inside out. That's why he sent Jesus to die on a cross for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, so that he could transform us inside and change everything about who we are. Not just the outside, but the inside you want to know more about having a relationship with God today through Jesus Christ, then you need to come down front either during the song or after the song. Speak with one of our prayer team members or with me. We would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who allows us to get to the point where we can love God and love others. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us and grows us, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here as believers and just worship you and praise you. And Lord, as we sing about the love that you have for us, let that soak in deep. Let that bring about in us a response of love for you and love for those around us and love for people that don't even know you who are all over the city. Lord, I pray that our love for you and our love for the people that you created in your image would just flourish and abound and that it would start right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen.